Tansi, Oki. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ancestral Science. We are a group of Indigenous scientists, artists, and educators eager to reconnect, explore, and share the depth of scientific knowledges within Indigenous stories and bring together global and Indigenous sciences for sustainability and relationality. My name is Corey. My mother's ancestors are Cree and Métis from Big Prairie up in northern Alberta. My father's ancestors are Polish Ukrainian. Uh, my mixed heritage is reflected in my ongoing exploration of relational science through multiple experiences, senses, and worldviews. Each episode has unique Indigenous science merch, so see the show notes to check that out. And that small monthly fee goes towards honoraria for elders and keeping this podcast going. Also, make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and get notified of all of the newest episodes. It was a windy and cold January winter day here in Treaty 7, traditional home of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Sutena Nation, and Ithaca Nakoda First Nation, and more recently, Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. And we had the pleasure of speaking with Hal Eagletail from Sutena Nation. We asked him, what is science to you? which sparked a fascinating conversation about natural laws, the connections between quantum, spirit, and energy, the Sky River, portals, Sasquatch, and how Indigenous ceremonies have gifted knowledge about viruses. Without further ado, let's check out Hal on this episode of Ancestral Science, Sky Rivers to Quantum Portals. So we just started off in a good way with some protocols. I offered tobacco or reciprocity for the time and knowledge of our guests today. We smudged to ground ourselves and well to cleanse our spirit and connect ourselves today with each other, with the four elements, as well as a prayer was offered. So thank you. Hi, hi. Thank you for that. Uh, so we ask everyone to open their minds and their hearts to maybe some knowledge that they may not know. And with that, we'll probably hear some pretty cool stories and some interesting knowledge that will be dropped here today. And we just ask that you follow protocol in the sense that, you know, if you want to share this, talk about these stories, these ideas, and just remember to connect it to the person that we're speaking of, as well as the lands that they're connected with. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to our guest today to introduce themselves. From Sutina Nation, part of the Treaty 7 Signing uh, nations of Southern Alberta, Canada, North America, third planet from the sun, Earth. It's a great honor to be here with all of you today, and uh, I'm just uh, appreciative of how we started. We lit the smudge, we, we did the uh, offering of tobacco, and as, uh, as our relatives across uh, Turtle Island know, tobacco is is one of our four main universal smudges or medicine plants that we collectively use. So tobacco, sage, buffalo grass, cedar, sweet pine, sweet grass, these are all used amongst our nations for our guiding our prayers and guiding our days on a, on a daily basis. So when we offer the uh, tobacco in its interpretation was the very first plant Creator blessed us with. And he said that this plant, or I should, I should say Creator said, I don't know if he's he or she, uh, Creator mentioned that this plant is a reflection of connecting with spirit world, but also a respectful reflection of taking something from Mother Earth. So we'll offer that tobacco when we receive and, and we take uh, some of our plants and our medicines uh, from the earth. That's kind of our, our way of saying thank you and, and kind of a payment if that's how you interpret things. But tobacco was that first plant given to us by Creator, so we honor it with our prayers. We light it with the smudge and we put it down whenever 
we come into one of our ceremonies or any of our social dances or we request knowledge from our elders or knowledge keepers, spiritual leaders. So it's a great honor to be interpreting science in the ways of modern and indigenous thinking. Yeah. So with that, Hal, what is science to you? Well, science basically is just a connection with all living things. And if you want to go into a deeper sense of the science, there's also the quantum science, which is the connection with all spirit world and universal connections. And I think this is something that it gets deeper when you get into the quantum thinking. That's more of our, our real deep spiritual leader ceremonies and reflection and, and, and parallels. But there is a lot of parallels between Western science and indigenous science in that we want to protect the environment, we want to protect the ecosystem, and we want to be contributors to those protections. And I do believe, and this is a reflection of our, of our ceremonies, that the earth is at the edge of a cliff, ready to fall over. And in our oral history, we talk about a flood, starting all life all over again. We talk about ice, starting life all over again. We, as human people, contributed to our own demise in, in the position we're in now, that we're at the edge of a cliff ready to fall over. What is preventing us from falling over is the respect that the indigenous populations of the world have for the Mother Earth already and continue to have. If those stop, if we don't pass on this knowledge, then that Earth's going to plunge into the next, I guess, cleansing of the earth and starting of life all over again. So we need to encourage our, our traditional people of North America, South America, the indigenous people uh, of other parts of the world, in Australia, New Zealand. You have the Tibet monks that still offer ceremonies for the earth. You have the witches of Europe that still honor the medicines and the plants, you know, we need to pass on all this knowledge. Once it stops, I think this is where we're going to have a, another starting of all life and all humankind. You talked about the parallels of indigenous science or maybe relational science and global or Western science, but I hear a lot of differences in the sense that there's this sense of reciprocity and respect that is within indigenous or relational science that's maybe not the science that often we are taught in school, that often we are, how we define science that is maybe objective or it's reduced down to its little tiny parts where you don't, talking about quantum, you take a measurement of something static in time, but it's not real because it's always changing, it's always in flux. And there is these differences and similarities as well. Can you speak or expand on any of those? Well, you know, in our ceremonies, there's always going to be a conductor between this world and spirit world. And the conductor that really starts the process is what we call our pipe. The, the pipe is the center of all ceremonies. It's when we bring this world and spirit world together. But there needs to be a conductor for the forces of these two worlds to come forward and to come through. Basically, we're talking in the terms of the realms or the dimensions that may exist out there. And the scientific community are studying this phenomenon of dimensional portal travel. 
the native people all over the world already had an understanding of this portal or this doorway between the, the worlds, the spirit world and this world. And this is where we conduct our ceremonies. This is where we influence our healing and our knowledge of the medicines, the plants, the different mixtures, the preparations. This is our connection with all living things in this world and in the cosmos. So when you look at, say, for instance, um, NASA trying to develop technology that's going to take us from Earth to Mars or to Jupiter or, or to other parts of the uh, universe, and the time constraint that has on the physical body as well as the aging process and how do we preserve our age in that type of long-term travel, traveling from one star to one planet or to whatever. Our understanding is that that instant travel is already in existence through our communication with the natural world. And this is where I think scientists now are, are studying the possibilities of utilizing what, what they call uh, wormholes or portals from one dimension to the next. And Very sci-fi. Yeah, it is. But for the native people, it's a reality. It's how we communicate with the spirit world. And this is how they come into our ceremonies. They talk and they give us messages. And they don't give secrets of what life after death, because these are creator's laws and, and they can't be interpreted while we're still trying to prove ourselves, really. But it helps us. It helps us manifest a positive identity for yourself and for people around you. And this is what the uh, essence of being indigenous is to have a unified existence with all living things, not just the human life, but the natural world. Yeah, it's like more that relationality of connection, not just with the circle of life and connecting with everything around us, but also with, like you were saying, those other dimensions, those other times. And I think, you know, I was joking about, oh, it's very sci-fi, but if you think of, you know, science fiction as the future of going through these different portals and different dimensions and how that's, you know, oh, it's way in the future. We can't even think about how to do this. We have to figure out all the technology, but is that just indigenous science? Is that just relational science where we've known for thousands of years that, okay, there is a way that we have these connectors, like you're saying, these portals, the pipe. Remember you saying that water is that connector too, when you put, you know, pour that water onto the rocks and the lodge and the sweat lodge, you know, it creates that connector between the ancestors and the spirits where we can, like you say, receive knowledge. It's not science fiction, is that just indigenous science? Well, that water you mentioned is the lubricant between the portals. That's what allows this world and spirit world to come through to each other. So you'll have water in all of our ceremonies. And when you have uh, sightings, say, of the big guy, they call him Bigfoot or Sasquatch, or you have UFO sightings, there's always water around. Water is that conductor, like I said, it's the lubricant that allows us to coexist. My biggest worry when NASA is trying to build these spaceships for long-term travel is the fact that we're punching microscopic holes in our protective layer that protects the Earth. So when you look at uh, the Launching cell... Launching rockets and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, so when you look at a cell in your human body, there's a protective uh, membrane 
that protects the cell from outside foreign influences or, or contamination. And if you're to put a hole in that cell, it's going to kill the cell because of all these uh, uh, foreign um, entities and, and different uh, chemical makeup is making its way in or losing from the earth our, our ozone protector, our, our oxygen, our emissions that uh, are natural to this world. So the problem isn't global warming based on the energy output of you know technology. That's a contributing factor, definitely, the oil and gas industry. But I think our biggest issue for ourselves is continually putting holes in the membrane that protects us from, from outer space. So we need to stop putting rockets into the, into the uh, universe. There's how many more now, too. Yeah. I mean, Daily. why do we do that? I mean, we can never humanly or mathematically be able to get from Earth to, say, uh, the next uh, livable planet that's what they say, you know, 100 light years away or whatever. And it's these dimensional portholes that'll get us there in an instant. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, how we should be spending our NASA dollars, okay. is the studying of our NASA? own knowledge from the indigenous people to cooperate. And I think mm -hmm. if we go back to my original interpretation of the earth being at the edge of a cliff ready to fall over. There's going to come a time in the future where government, society, scientific community are going to be at the cusp of killing us all off due to our own uh, negligence of our actions. And then they're going to come to the native people, the indigenous people of the world and say, how can you help us fix these things? And it's going to be too late. You think that's happened yet? It's not yet. We're, we're, we're almost Close. getting there. We're getting there. Mm -hmm. But if we start involving now our native people, our indigenous people of the world and their knowledge of the natural laws, and how can we work together to prevent this catastrophic end of world, end of time, we call it in our native culture. Uh, let me give you a good example. There is a, a sickness back in the uh, mid-80s that had no knowledge of how it started in the United States South. And it was killing people through a respiratory, unknowing to anybody at the time, hantavirus is what they, they called it. And after at the time, nobody knew what it was. Yeah, at the yeah. time, no one knew how it was being spread. So with failed attempts at scientific community to to try analyze and, and to protect the people, the Navajo spiritual community had to sit down with these scientists and these doctors. And they went through a ceremony. They went through one of our traditional practice for thousands upon thousand years ceremony, and we asked for assistance from the spirit world. And after that ceremony, the spiritual leaders told the scientists, check the rodents. That was the message they got. So they looked in to the rodents and they found a pattern of the pinion boom seasons, which were like every four or five years, there would be this pinion boom. And all of this excess food would give an explosion to the rodent population. And they correlated that these outbreaks happened with these booms of pinion. And then they found further, because of the rodent explosion of population, the droppings of the mice 
when it dried, led to the airborne virus of the Hanta virus. And this is how they're able to identify through that ceremony to check the rodents. So the local community figured out, that Navajo community figured out through ceremony what the problem was. Did that community go to the scientific community and say, hey, figure this out? Or I, I believe was it, it was the, the doctors and scientists coming to the native community. Yeah. And I read this in a scientific journal, actually. They had a picture of the doctors and the ceremonious Navajo sitting there. And then they had to write up of, you know, this is how we discovered where the source came from. It was from the droppings of them rodents and these boom pinion uh, nut seasons. So maybe in the future we'll, you know, see all the elders and knowledge keepers sitting down with the NASA scientists and talking about portals. Well, this is the quantum side of things. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the real getting to the, I guess, uh, cellular uh, interpretation of science. And I truly believe through our traditional teachings, even though we weren't brought up in a scientific terminology with all these big words, they complicate things. You know, it's like how the human people categorize animals, mammals, birds. They can't just simply look at them the way native people look at them. We don't say this is the reptiles or this is the mammals. We say these are our brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. That's our brother, the bear. That's our sister, the eagle. You know, that's how we look at them. We don't categorize them. We're not higher than anything that's natural law. And this is why whenever we take something from the earth, we always have to give an offering for it. We don't just take without paying that tobacco or that request to to utilize. And when you start thinking this way, you'll realize that every single one of us, we're all born with the ability to heal ourselves. Every single one of us have this gift. Some people more in tune than others. And this is why we have these spiritual guides Some people call them medicine man or shaman, but we call them guides because when you go to a traditional person, he'll guide you on how to heal yourself. And we all have the ability to heal ourselves. But the society we live in, we got to pay our bills, we got to raise our children, we got to fight traffic. (laughs) We forget the simplest things on how to meditate, how to pray, how to sit by that river, and how to connect in your thoughts on the land and try to influence your surroundings to come to you. You know, when I, when I sit there on top of a hill offering my prayers, I'm asking these chickadees to come and sit with me. Mm. I'm asking these butterflies to come and sit in front of me. And when you develop your skills or your connections strong enough, those chickadees will come. Mm-hmm. those butterflies will perch in front of you. We all have this ability to do that. We just don't practice it enough. We don't sit there and, and become one with our living environment. And I think that's the big, like you were saying, that's the big difference between indigenous science, relational science, and global or Western science. We learn that science is, like you said, about categories, about disconnecting 
the birds from the reptiles, the chemistry from mathematics where, you know, it's not connected. You learn about it in different places where there's no relationality, where therefore humans have a hierarchy and a superiority over everything else and therefore can take all of that knowledge and have that power over and therefore if not giving back, you know, so there's that categorization of plants and animals and humans are therefore above that within global or western science and we're not giving back and that's what's happening today you know that's what's happening with the environment we're not giving back we're not giving thanks to all that earth has given us all that and that's the predicament i think maybe that we're in today and to think about our place within that circle like you're saying there's that humility of knowing humility of respect of of living within that circle and and understanding the chickadees and making a relationship with those chickadees, I think, is something that we can hopefully really learn from and to maybe practice and take a moment and go talk to a chickadee. Yeah. Well, I think uh, it's more than trying to connect with the chickadee. <laughs> it's trying to gain knowledge of your own spiritual self mm-hmm. and your own connection to your Uh, what they call ESP, or your telekinesis. We all have this ability to get to those points as human beings, but it's like I said, we're all, depending on our environment that we grew up in, dictates how strong that connection is. And as Indigenous people, especially in Canada, we lost a lot of that connection being forced upon other people's, I guess, beliefs and denomination beliefs and the residential school, you know, cycle of effect. They call it historical trauma from one generation to the next. We lost a lot of that, Mm -hmm. you know. We lost our connection and its relevant in our communities with high suicide and high addiction rates. And science can help us understand how to be better parents. Just like we learned how to be a a better parent from the wolf. The wolf taught us how to protect your children, how to provide for your children, how to protect your family unity. And science can also help us understand our chemical makeup and what type of uh, addictions has a big effect on how we, I guess, perceive our life. So, good example. I used to work for Alberta Health Services. I was a traditional wellness counselor. So my role was to go into the hospitals, provide herbal treatment to patients in all races. There was no segregating our knowledge for our herbal medicine. But we also offered our spiritual treatment, our prayers and our pipes and ceremonies. And one thing that I really was amazed of was the ability to study other nationalities, similar beliefs and healing methods. One that I found extreme interest was from Chinese doctors. They had a uh, brain tumor patient live feed of his tumor on a big screen through ultrasound. And the two doctors and the patient put all their beliefs and their abilities to heal themselves, to heal this patient. And they concentrated and they were basically in a trance visualizing the shrinking of this tumor. And you can see on the live feed, the tumor actually shrinking, getting smaller in real time. So they call this alternative medicine. 
I called it original yeah. medicine. We all have this ability to heal ourselves. And they were just proving that point that it doesn't matter which nationality you come from, you have enough beliefs and you can funnel your energy and direct it to the issues at hand. Then you'll be able to heal, actually heal yourself. And this just goes back to how we identify foreign substances in our bodies that our body can actually sense and go and heal. Now, one thing that doesn't get sensed, identified as often, is warts on the child's fingers. You know, so you see these growths on their fingers, these warts. The body doesn't know it's there. The body doesn't know there's a foreign entity growth happening on the outside of its skin. So what we used to do was we would go down to the river. We would take a stone out of the water, and you'd see all of the sediment and whatnot on, on the stone. And then we would rub it on the warts. We'd say a prayer, we'd offer tobacco, and we rub those stones on the warts of the children. And within the next few weeks, those warts are gone. What we're doing is we're putting bacteria on the outer part of the wart to alert the body there's something foreign there. So it starts the healing process of this foreign substance alerted by the help mm. of that stone from the water. But it was the bacteria in the water then that gave it the heads up. That's amazing. You think there's also something too, that community and that ceremony of that as well. It's not just rubbing the rock on it, but like you were saying, you're offering tobacco, there's community coming together to help this child. And there's something to that care. And like you were saying that, you know, how to be a parent, how to, with in, instead of maybe just here taking a pill which is, you know, very different within a different type of science. But, you know, knowing that, okay, this works. We understand that maybe this method has been passed on for how many thousands of years through stories, but it's community-based. There's still that respect as well for the rock, for the water, for the bacteria in that process. Well, this is why it's so important to allow your children to play outside. Mm -hmm. Let them get dirty, let them make mud pies, let them throw the leaves up. Let them build up an immunity to the environment's bacteria makeup. Mm -hmm. If they're sitting inside all day long on video games doing nothing, you know, they're going to grow up to be sickly people. Those children that are playing and building the immunity from the bacteria buildup are going to have a stronger chance of survival in the future. And that's just basic common science. Go lick a rock, eat some dirt. Yeah. <laughs> Suggestions make a, from make a mud pie. <laughs> Did that a lot as a kid. <laughs> yes. And also um, getting back to how science can help us become better parents. Mm -hmm. I attended a seminar when I was working with AHS, and it was on a brain surgeon. He took two, I think they were 14-year-old boys, identical in age, took pictures of their brain functions and their neuron functions, one child was born into foster care, and the brain function, you can visually see, was dull. The neurons weren't connecting as, as brightly as the 14-year-old that came up in a loving home. And the child that came up in this loving home, his neuron activity was just bright. You can see it off the picture of these two identical brain scans. So the brightness of this child in a loving home compared to the dullness of this child in foster care, he said, you give them both 
a hard drug, whether it's crack cocaine or meth, or and that instantaneous effect it has on the brain is really how the person was brought up, whether they're going to be become addicted to the drug. So you give it to the child that was through foster care and no love and no one there to guide them and nurture the person in a positive environment, safe environment. That instantaneous effect it had on connecting the neurons with that artificial sensation of that drug instantly addicts them. They're like, where the heck was this all my life? I feel so much connected. Mm -hmm. And then you give the same drug to the child that has just strong family upbringing and safe environment. Parents tell him I love him. Hugs. He'll take that drug and say, what's so good about this? Mm -hmm. That's nothing. I don't need this. That's how science can help us identify how to be better parents. Mm -hmm. We need to tell our children that we love them. Mm -hmm. We need to hug them. We need to give them a safe environment to grow up in, a sober environment. So this is what the residential school effect had a big impact on. This is what being forced to lie. We were forced to lie so that we would not get physically abused. And myself being a residential school survivor for five years, I know directly the impact it could have had had I not decided to be the breaker of the cycle. The chain stops with me. Mm-hmm. And I did not pass this on to my children. My children today, I still hug them and tell them I love them and give them a, a safe environment to grow up in, an alcohol, drug-free environment. So, But that didn't happen with a lot of people, unfortunately. It doesn't happen yeah. with everybody, even yeah. on the rest today. Mm-hmm. And even with the addictions that go from one generation to the next, they don't relate their problem with their upbringing because it's their lifestyle. You know, Mm -hmm. it's the lifestyle to have the alcohol and drug and dysfunction. It's normal for them. So it's going to be normal for them to pass that on. So this is what this historical trauma has inflicted on our people. We are the ones to make change. We need to unify the way our ancestors did in the buffalo hunt. So everyone played a role in that hunt. Everyone played a role and shared the bounty. We all contributed and we all benefited from the buffalo hunt collectively. Today, the hunt is different. Today, we're looking at, depending on your nation's location and uh, socioeconomics, could be economic development. It could be resource development. It could be timber, agriculture, horticulture. But the point is we need to all work together in order for us to be benefiting from the harvest. That's so important, that community aspect that's just very much been taken away because of residential schools, because of colonization, not just a removal from community within the circle, but also, you know, our connections with the land as well and reconnecting that I think is really important for, for everyone to understand. Well, we have stories that make sense to me on why colonization needed to happen. We were getting too advanced in the connection of all living things. We were getting too advanced for our own good. Like pre-colonization, do you mean? Or now? 
before colonization, okay. yes. Yeah. We were getting so advanced that we had visualized the origins of life. We have designs in our oral culture and our passed down from one generation to the next sperm cell designs. And these sperm cell designs reflect how life begins. We had this knowledge. When you look at when smallpox hit us, we knew what the smallpox virus physically looked like. Because when you look at the winter count and how we identify uh, events of our, of our history through the winter count, the smallpox virus is a circle and it's got these dots on it. Mm -hmm. That was when smallpox hit us. So if you look at smallpox under a microscope, it's a circle with dots on it. We've foreseen all of this. So we needed to slow down. We're too far ahead of ourselves. And this is when Creator brought us the European people. This is when he slowed us down from getting too advanced to look at the magic of that cuckoo clock. Mm. When, the, when our relatives on the East Coast first, and they have stories of this, oral histories, they would all gather around in a wigwam and they would wait for that cuckoo clock to come out and make a noise by itself. Mm -hmm. And that just blew them away. <laughs> that was so miraculous. That was such a, a beautiful miracle mm -hmm. to them. Yet, that was the technology that slowed us down, preventing us from continuing our advancement and allowed us to be curious of these European people and, and what they brought. So we're very, uh, I guess, uh, thankful, I guess, to say that we slowed down enough. But we're now kind of caught up with each other. So scientists know the origins of life. Scientists know how to even duplicate life in the labs and, and using that sperm cell and embryo and all of that technical term. I'm a little bit hesitant on how we're going to be able to uh, prevent ourselves from being too advanced. Mm -hmm. We need to have a balanced approach to the indigenous thoughts and to the Western uh, scientific thoughts and find a parallel on how we can concentrate on, on the environment. Each, I guess, worldview or, or perspective, way of being, doing science between, you know, indigenous science or Western science, there's, there's good things about both of them. And it's how they work together, right, to, to help one another. Yeah? With the same goal in but, mind, mm -hmm. and that is to preserve the natural laws for the next generations. We don't have the rights to take the resources and leave nothing for the future. Mm -hmm. Our responsibility is to make sure that, that the next generation sustains from the natural laws of what Creator gave us. So how do we do this? Is it working together in community again? Yes. Right? Can we go back to the sperm cell and the smallpox cell? Because I think maybe to explain maybe a bit more, or if I'm understanding this correctly, is this was pre-colonization. And as you were saying maybe before, understand maybe there's a, an illness in the, in the community, like you were saying about what was happening with the, with the mice and, and Navajo community, is, you know, go into ceremony. Okay, what is happening? 
or want to know more about the origins of life. You know, you go into ceremony and that knowledge is gifted to you. And you see, get gifted knowledge of, you know, the sperm cell or like you were saying, the uh, smallpox. What it looks like, what it would look like under a microscope. And then, you know, it's part of that understanding is part of a, a winter count, which is, it's what, like a, like a calendar, I guess, like with the pictures that depict uh, different significant events, just so everyone maybe understands, is that an accurate way of describing winter count? Yes. And, uh, and so this was then, say, colonization comes and, and, you know, science becomes centered around, you know, a Western uh, global standardized science perspective and the same questions are asked. You look under a microscope and you see the same things where I think it's interesting to look at where did that knowledge start, you know, or where was it, you know, people had known this for hundreds, thousands of years before somebody looked at it under the microscope. And I've also heard stories of, you know, different planets and stars and star cycles where, you know, we can't see anything now without a telescope, but there's been stories of those stars and those phenomena for thousands of years. And it's that additional dimension or that connection with ancestor ceremony knowledge you're saying it got really good yeah it's also society's ignorance the ignorance of the western medicine western science are readily able to right away laugh at these concepts laugh at oh the spirituality laugh at the uh, connection with all living things they're based on evidence, factual evidence. Mm-hmm. And you see it, analyze it. Where you can reproduce it. Yeah. You can't reproduce a dream or a ceremony. And I had an interesting experience. You know, we know the natural laws and the sources of our elements and how we survive is based on water. There's a big conference. Before COVID hit, real huge world scientific leaders met in Calgary and they asked me to come and do the opening blessing. So I came up there and I told all these water scientists, I said, thank you for trying to do your best for the water spirit. But you have to pay close attention to the abundance of where we get our water from. And their concept of that was, you know, the lakes and, and the streams and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I said, pay attention to the Sky River. The Sky River constantly flows all over the globe. And that's where we get our abundance of water to sustain life on Earth. Once that Sky River dries up or we start affecting its flow, its currents, then we're in big trouble as a human people. Then we're, we're close to the Earth falling over the cliff. So... Next thing, there's all these murmurs. And after I said that, all these scientists are murmuring away while before I even prayed. <clears throat> then I did my blessing. And I walked off the stage and, you know, I'm kind of walking out into the foyer. Next thing, I'm approached by all these scientists. And they're just like, we never thought of a sky river. We never put that concept of our most natural and uh, abundance of water comes from the sky river. But it makes so much scientific sense <laughs> that now we're going to start looking closely at, at that concept. And I said, it's not a concept. It's a natural law. It's a natural yeah. ability of, of why we're sustained. You know, we've known this for thousands upon thousands of years of indigenous people. And imagine if you sat down with our indigenous spiritual leaders, how much 
knowledge we can share with one another mm. and how much better insight we'll have to the natural abilities of uh, living and coexisting with uh, all living things. That was a exceptional <laughs> memory that I have, you know, like kind of <laughs> opening up the eyes of our, of our PhD and uh, years and years of university uh, with a simple reflection of one of our, our beliefs. A good aha beliefs. moment for a lot of people, hey? Yes. Yeah. You talked about that awesome aha moment that you had or the, the scientists had at the water conference. And I was thinking about my own aha moment when I realized that the way that I learned math and science in school was maybe not relational, didn't have anything to do with myself. Um, I realized uh, I was doing my my master's in England and I couldn't figure out how to, you know, what to specialize in. And I came across this this graphic of like a body tally counting system out of Papua New Guinea. And it's counting on all parts of your body. And there's often not even a word connected to those numbers. And you touch different parts of your body to add, to subtract, and to trade, and to trade between communities. And often those systems are different. And I thought about how abstract I learned numbers, how it didn't connect to myself or to anything around me. And I realized that, you know, if I connect with, how would math be different if I connected with numbers, not just with myself, with my spirit, but also, you know, with the land. And that's kind of where I started on my journey. And I was going to ask you, what was, you know, that first time that you realized, you know, the depth of math and science within these traditional stories and knowledge within your community, within you know, the indigenous knowledges that you've learned? Well, one of the, uh, I guess, absent philosophies that our indigenous people had was that we never seen a correlation between mathematics and science with the natural laws. We just seen them for what they were, a way of foretelling what to expect in the different seasons and how to live within the seasons and the structures of the natural growing seasons and, and the harvesting seasons. So when we ask for help from, from Mother Earth, we'll look towards the muskrat and, and the pond that it lives in. And if it has a home close to the edge of the, the water, uh, the, the, the water lines close to the edge of the land, that home location tells us we'll have a mild winter. Mm -hmm. If it's further into the middle where the water's deeper in, in, the, in the deeper freeze, where it can have access in and out of its home, it tells us it'll be a, a harsher winter. So just the picking on where the muskrat builds its lodge in the pond kind of dictates and tells us what to expect for the up and coming winter season. When you look at indigenous calendars, they're all based on the movements of the natural laws. January is the month when the bear cubs are born in the caves, and that's how we depict that month of January. Between the end of January and February, kind of where we're coming towards in, in our calendar year, is our 13th month. This is the month of unstable weather. This is where things all get all kind of out of whack in, in regards to winter storms, nice weather, Chinooks blowing in, whatever. It's like the extremes. Yeah, and then February is when the eagles start returning from the mm -hmm. south, the migration of the eagles coming from the south to the north. 
and there's an area within our lands that it's called Eagle Crossing. And this is where you'll see an abundance of eagles migrating high up in the atmosphere. And when you go further into the mountains, you can see hundreds of eagles migrating. So we're just kind of at the outer edge of that migration route. And they follow the mountain range, the eagles. It's like almost a straight line from way up north to Alaska, leading down into uh, Mexico. So our calendar is a reflection, I guess you can say, of our our mathematics and our uh, natural uh, laws of the animals. Mm -hmm. And we measure those months with the natural laws of, say, um, when, when the ducks start molting or when the ducks lay their eggs those are them. That's how we interpret the month. When the elk roll in the water, getting ready for the uh, rut, and that's an indication of our harvest time, our hunting moon, harvest moon, mm-hmm. the picking of the berries. All of these is a reflection of the natural laws. Is how we interpret our calendars, and you'll see that in a lot of indigenous cultures. So, in Canada, there's over 600 native bands. We, we all belong to one of 11 language groups, my language group being Dene, and we, we are the most populous indigenous people in North America, and we have the most casinos. <laughs> we have uh, the most population in regards to our migration. So when you look at uh, Can- uh, Canada, U.S., North America, one big ice shelf during the Ice Age the thaw happened along the, the southern part of, uh, of uh, North America, which is now Mexico. Our language is a the dialect of Aztec language. And the migration as the thaw happened, the most concentration of our Dene people are located in that area, in the Navajo, the Apache, mm-hmm. they number in the hundreds of thousands. And then the receding of the ice along the west coast, we followed that melt. So we have Dene in California, Oregon, Washington, uh, British Columbia, right up to Alaska. There was a land bridge between Alaska and Russia today. And we have Dene people in Russia called Mm -hmm. the Ket people. And then we got cut off when that thaw and that uh, water uh, separated us. And then the next thaw happened along what they, is known as the Mackenzie River Valley. So our people followed that melt. And we now have our concentration of Dene in northern British Columbia, uh, Yukon, Northwest Territories, northern Alberta, northern Saskatchewan, northern Manitoba, right to the Hudson's Bay. So our, our evolution... And our migration, from our perspective, happened from the south, coming north. And then once we get our own scientists, anthropologists, archaeologists, and the theories that are accredited and viewed as authentic and a reflection of that education a person possesses, that paper, that piece of paper that says, my theory is correct, will dispel a lot of... Barren Strait archaeologist theories. There was a people that came with the Barren Strait. It wasn't the native people. Our origins and, and um, 
oral history is that it's the Inuit people. So the Inuit and the indigenous and native people are two distinct people. And you can look at the DNA mm -hmm. to actually see the distinction. One interesting thing in science that this goes to our DNA is that the indigenous people have a special gene that no other nation has on earth. And it was a gene that sustained our metabolism from long stretches of starvation. There's a lot of times where food was very scarce. Mm -hmm. So this gene kicks in to help our body metabolize during that weight to sustain our bodies and our ability to survive. And we honor the kidneys of an animal and we actually put it on our teepees. So when you look at our teepee and there's an animal, there'll be, there'll be two circles on the back of the animal. It doesn't matter which kind of animal, a curved arrow mm -hmm. that's pointing at the kidneys. Because after a kill, you can actually eat the kidneys raw to give you that sustenance and that survival to help wait for the curing of the meat and the drying process and mm -hmm. the feasting of the harvest. So we honor those kidneys because it gives us life. Now, this gene is going to erase itself within the next two generations of the indigenous people if we do not practice the eating of the natural animals and the harvesting of the natural foods. So this is very important for us as indigenous people to maintain the culture and the practices our ancestors went through on hunting and living off the land. And we need to continue to harvest our, our wild meats, our wild berries, our wild vegetables. And we need to continue practicing that. So we never lose this gene. And we're also passing on, on a vital technique and skill to the next generations. Mm -hmm. So that knowledge keeps, you know, is continued within the community and those, like you were saying, the muskrat and, and the migrations and it's understanding the world around you and how you can live within that circle well. And, you know, by predicting, like you were saying, the, uh, where how cold the winter is going to be or, you know, predicting what's going to happen in the next month or whatnot so you can prepare yourself, right? So you can prepare for the harvest, prepare for the hunt. I always kind of remember you told the muskrat story several years ago, and I call it muskrat math now because I always say, it's how we learn math and measurement through the land. You're not going to get out a ruler and measure where the muskrat's den was last year versus where it is this year. It's, you know, you can observe that. You experience, okay, you've seen last year that it was in this location. It was a really cold winter because it was in the middle of the river. But now, you know, it's closer to the side. Let's expect a more mild winter and prepare for that. And that is passing on that knowledge. It's not written. You're not getting on a measuring stick. But it is, you know, a relational science. And like you said, you know, it's, you don't really know. It's not about defining it or translating that knowledge into five-syllable English-Latin word, right? But it's about understanding, you know, what does that mean for yourself, your community, and then passing that on. Exactly. It's like our counting stick calendar. When the Thunderbirds come back in the spring, that's when they would start the counting stick process. They would bring a stick out of that bundle, they would smudge it, and they would put it to the days gone by. Mm. And the bundle of sticks days yet to come... Every day, 
they would smudge it and they would put so that we can keep an eye on the Thunderbird cycle. And then it goes until the Thunderbirds leave in the fall time. Mm. So this enabled us no one to harvest, no one to uh, start preparing, you know, for the winter months. And that's what our life was all based around, is our survival and the sustainability of our environment. So if you look at, they call our traditional lands, we share the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy, and the boundaries of these lands was as far north as the North Saskatchewan River, from the Rocky Mountains to the Cypress Hills in Saskatchewan, and as far south as, for the Blackfoots, the Yellowstone River, for our Sutina was the Missouri River, southern boundary. Mm -hmm. Our role in this traditional territory was to make sure that the sustainability of the environment was upheld. There was no overhunting, over over harvesting. And this was our responsibility of each traditional uh, lands of our indigenous population. Now, how do we apply those traditional concepts? In today's urban sprawl, uh, overpopulation, and I actually had a really interesting uh, conversation with a politician, and I asked him, for your riding, what's your environmental platform? How are you going to sustain the environment of your riding? Mm. And he said, we don't have one, you know, we don't look at things like that. I said, imagine if you did, imagine if you started this concept of your environmental platform in your riding. How can we sustain our lives of our population and our riding within our environment confines? And imagine every politician, every riding had an environmental platform to sustain the, the human race, you know, Absolutely. to sustain life. Yeah. And I'm sure it's not just, you know, you think of maybe, oh, maybe an environmental platform for a rural riding, as opposed to not maybe not even having that conversation within a city or an urban environment, right? Well, this is why we have this, we paint ourselves in a, in a corner with, when mm -hmm. it comes to our environment, mm -hmm. the natural flow of, of the uh, spring thaw and the sustainability of the environment and the land, the soil, everything with the birds and the butterflies, the bees and everything that come migrating through. We need this protection. We need this thinking from our politicians. It reminds me of um, when my late father, he did a blessing of the new hospital in Calgary called South Health Campus in the chapel. And all the denominations worship were there blessing that site so that whoever came to use that site there is a connection to being blessed with that denomination's beliefs mm -hmm. and he was the last to, to bless that site he lit the smudge asked for blessing prayers in his prayer song and then he said something I'll never forget he said when I see all of the denominations here it reminds me of a teepee without its cover. He said, every pole represents all the denominations on Mother Earth, and all of our prayers all go straight up to Creator. But just like those poles touch, all of our beliefs are similar in that we want to be good 
humble people. So we never question what makes a person humble because those prayers and those poles continue their, their, their journeys to create are straight up. And then on the way home, I said, Dad, who's the beliefs on the ears? Because they don't actually touch the rest of the poles. He said, that's business and government. Those poles' purpose is to prevent the teepee from smoking. You can close the flaps, you can... However, the wind direction's coming in. If business and government aren't doing their jobs, then we're all up in smoke, he said. And that analogy was so welcomed and acknowledged by the admin staff at South Health Campus. After he had passed on, they wanted to immortalize those words and that, that philosophy. So they asked the family, can we use your father's analogy to honor that chapel site at the South Health Campus. So mm. we did that. We said, yes, we'd be honored. Uh, we had a big ceremony and the unveiling of the story there beside the chapel entrance. And there you can see his analogy. And it's something that I don't know if he consciously was connecting science and spirituality and our need for survival as a human race to be protective of our environment, live in harmony mm-hmm. of all living things. That was just our way of life, and that was just how he viewed how life should coexist with each other. It's like that perception of knowledge as a right, like with you know Western global knowledge, where you have a right to the certain you know you pay enough money, you have a right to certain knowledge, versus a responsibility. You know, like you're talking about, I think that's you know business and politics, like with the environmental policy, there's a responsibility with that knowledge that is gifted, right? And how do we create sustainability? How do we make sure that the next generation is taken care of and those generations after? Which leads me to my final question. What do you see for the next generation? What do you hope? What are your hopes for Indigenous science? For, you know, how can people learn about this? What what do you see for the future? I see a continued fight between good and evil. And that's just a way of life for everyone born into this world. There's always a battle of good and evil for our spirit, Mm -hmm. our souls. And this fight is existent now in the world politics and worldview of economics, of uh, resource development, of um, global economies. And we need to really help our governing bodies understand that greed, corruption, the evil cannot win over preserving Mother Earth and giving our future generations an Earth to live within, leaving them clean air, clean water, the sustenance of the animals, the healing of the plants. We need to have that in mind for the next generations. And if they start thinking that way and passing laws to protect that, then they're thinking like a Native person. And this is, I think, what we come to what we call reconciliation. How can we live in harmony with each other? How can we abide by the natural laws and sustain something for generations yet unborn? And I think this is the important um, aspect of what we're trying to do here is educate how can we uh, 
live and survive, but develop new technologies that'll help the survival for the future. And uh, I'm encouraged because governments like, say, in the U.S. and in Canada, they're, they're leaning more towards electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. They're putting policy and, and, and government dollars into original energies. I don't call them alternative energies. I call them yeah, original sure. energies, the like sun, that. the water, you know, the natural things of earth that we can utilize. And I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged that they're starting to think a, like a native person. I like that. I think the key thing there is live within, you know, live within, you know, that circle within the earth, not live on. Like I think we often say on again, that's that hierarchy and, and ego, right. Versus, you know, living, living within, living together and, you know, supporting that community and, you know, working together for that, for that sustainability for the next generation. And sit in ceremony, Mm -hmm. hear the guidance of the natural spirits and the connections we have with, with that spirit world on how to put into place ideas and concepts to preserve Mother Earth mm-hmm. and to live within uh, the, the blessings of, of all living things. And this is when you go to treaty, all of this interpretation, legal interpretation, came from the, the white settlers. That was their interpretation of government and how their, their justice and their legal, I guess, structure of language really pulled the, the shade over the native people at the time. But one thing that we had to be insistent on is that we have the natural laws as part of our contribution to this treaty. Mm-hmm. So the peace treaties were to share the land up to a depth of a plow so that the settlers can have agriculture and and grow crops and have a survival. Our interpretation of, we'll honor this peace as long as the the sun shines, grass grows, and rivers flow. Mm -hmm. And these natural laws are meant for time immemorial. Once once we stop the rivers from flowing, once we shut off the the ability for the sun to come in and the grass ain't growing, does this mean that all these foreigners to our, our indigenous land have to go back to where they came from, <laughs> you know? So Ugh. this is where we need to uh, be thankful that we always thought from our ancestors making treaty for us, we need to have that spirit of intent of those treaties and the natural laws to guide us in the future and to guide all mankind mm-hmm. on this earth to live in harmony with one another. Absolutely. Well, Hal, thank you for guiding us on this journey. I'm always humble and grateful for, for your time, your knowledge, and I always learn so much every time you have a conversation. So hi, hi, I'm grateful. And thank you so much, everyone, for for listening. And I, and I encourage you all, if you want to pass on or if you want to talk about any of this amazing knowledge and, and from Hal Eotel, please... You know, just, you know, credit, credit Hal with this amazing knowledge. Remember, Hal Eagle Tail from Sutena Nation. That's the the protocols that we can, you know, pass on this knowledge in a good way. Um, So we are thankful for 
this amazing conversation and hopefully we can do it again soon. So thank you. My great honor. Thank you. See you, Skas. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. We really appreciate it. Also, we love questions and you can ask them on patreon.com. Just search Ancestral Science. All of the fees from Patreon and merch all go towards Elder Honorary and keeping this podcast going. Thanks again to Emil Starlight from Sutena for his epic recording and editing skills. Until next time, remember to take a moment to listen to the wisdom and the science of the land, animals, and star ancestors. We never say goodbye, so we'll see you again. Hi, hi.